Today's reading is from Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God of heaven is at hand. The word of the Lord. Have uh, any of you out in the uh, congregation this morning, have you ever failed a test? in your life. Never failed a test. Wow, that's good. I'm proud of you. Um, I was always a pretty good student, so, you know, s- school, uh, I didn't fail too many tests until my senior year of high school. I took uh, AP Calculus, and uh, I took it pass-fail, though, so I failed a lot of tests in AP Calculus, but it didn't hurt my grade point average, so let that be a lesson to us all. If you fail, do it in such a way that it will hurt you uh, the, the least amount. Um, but the last test that I remember failing um, kind of more, more recently. You, avo- you also, as an adult, avoid tests more and more things where it's like pass-fail. But uh, I had to get my California commercial driver's license. That was contingent. When I, when I took the job as a youth pastor in California, part of the job was the church owned a bus. Um, it was like a white bluebird 1990. It looked like a prison bus, essentially. <laughs> um, sort of functioned that way, too. And um, so we had this prison bus, and part of the deal was, well, you're going to drive kids to camp. It costs lots of money to rent buses, so you're going to drive it, and you need to get your commercial driver's license, your bus driver's license. So I went to the DMV because we were going to live in California, so I had to transfer my Minnesota license to uh, California, and you go in, and I told them I need to get a bus driver's license. How do I go about doing that? You said, well, first, they said, first, you get your permit. And I said, well, how do I do that? And they said, well, you take the permit test. I said, well, how do I do that? And they said, well, you can take it right now. Just go right over there. We'll give you the paper. Go sit down. And I thought, well, how hard can it be? Right? I mean, it's, I've, I've been driving for 10 years, very few accidents, very few speeding tickets. Um, so, you know, I, I know the rules of the road. I, I'll, take, I'll take the commercial driver's license test. It's the same thing. Um, 
It turns out that in order to pass a test for a commercial driver's license, you actually have to like know something about the material. And uh, it became very clear to me quickly uh, that uh, I was going to fail miserably, and I did, and that California was right to deny me a permit to operate a commercial vehicle until I could demonstrate basic knowledge about the operation of such vehicles, let alone have the ability to actually drive one which incidentally, my first behind the wheel uh, road test for the bus commercial driver's license, I failed before even driving the bus one inch. <laughs> but that's another story. And uh, you know, don't worry parents, your, your kids are safe with me. <laughs> All right. Faith, you know it's exercising faith when you got in that prison bus. <laughs> Didn't lose one. So, uh, but the focus of our passage this morning, it's a temptation, but it's more than that because this word that we, is translated as temptation, it could actually be translated as a test. It's the same with our Lord's Prayer. You know, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into the time of trial. Lead us not into the test. And temptation, when we say that, it has, you know, a, a negative connotation to it that someone's trying to get you to do something bad, but something more than that is happening here, because only the third temptation, could you say, is really obviously like Jesus is being tempted to do something um, really morally objectionable. And so the Spirit, it, it leads Jesus into the wilderness right after his baptism. Not so much that Jesus can face, you know, a temptation to do bad things, morally objectionable things, but, but in order for Jesus to face a test to prove what kind of Messiah he's going to be. This is this is not a road test. This is not a permit test. This is the Messiah test, the representative of Israel test, the representative of humanity test. Jesus is going to be tested to see, if, is he going to be faithful where God's people were faithless? And is he going to be faithful where even our first parents, Adam and Eve, were faithless? Will he pass the test, or will he, even like the great heroes of the faith before Moses and Aaron and Miriam and Samuel and David and Solomon and all the other prophets and priests and kings that came before, who for all their strength still fell woefully short? Matthew is always connecting Jesus' story with Israel's story. We see that even in the back end of our passage where it talks about Jesus moving to Capernaum. And for Matthew, that's, that's not just you know, a, a random choice of venue. He, he is keen to search the Old Testament to say that this is consistent with what's come before in Scripture. He's saying Messiah, the Messiah is Israel's representative, but he's also all of humanity's too. And, 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 and we see this when Matthew, remember, he begins the gospel, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. So it's like a new book of Genesis starting. So we don't just see, you know, it, it, the Messiah as Israel's representative, but he is the representative of the entire human race. He's not just a second Moses or second David. He's also a second Adam. And so can Jesus pass these tests, the tests that Israel failed in the wilderness and the tests that our first parents failed in paradise? Because he's got to prove that he has the right stuff to be Israel's representative and our representative too. That he is the one who is going to reverse the curse and bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And reopen those gates of paradise. And so to, this morning we're going to look at Jesus' three different tests from three different angles. The test that Israel faced in the wilderness. The test that our first parents faced in the garden. And the test that we faith, face and we're going to see how they interlock and they fit together in all of these really interesting ways. And so the setting for Jesus' tests, 
It evokes Israel's Exodus journey. Everywhere in Matthew, we should be hearing, you know, echoes of Exodus, 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 Exodus. It's just happening everywhere. Everywhere, there's these echoes. And, and, and so Jesus goes out into the wilderness after he passes through the waters of baptism, just like the children of Israel went into the wilderness after they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel, they were led by a pillar of of, of cloud and of fire into the wilderness, just as Jesus here is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Do you hear those echoes? And Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Moses did before he received the Ten Commandments. And, and these 40 days and 40 nights, they mirror the 40 years of wilderness wandering of the Exodus. And so the wilderness for God's people and for Jesus, it's a place of, of, of testing. It's a place where, where you learn who God is, but, but just as important, you learn who you are. In the wilderness, you're confronted with the truth of who you really are, who you actually are when you're away from the normal and, and the comfortable and the, fami- and the familiar. That, that's one of the things I love most about going to the Boundary Waters. Because you're out in the wilderness, and out in the wilderness, you are exposed. There's nothing to fall back on. And so you learn a lot about yourself and your fellow travelers in the wilderness. Right? You learn a lot about someone when you, you know, take the wrong portage. Or when you're sitting um, by a campfire at some terrible mosquito-infested campsite after a long day of paddling. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about yourself when you're sleeping between... Dave Carlson and his, his son-in-law, Jeremiah Lamont, and they're both snoring in your ears. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn that maybe you might prefer a hammock uh, to sleeping between those two guys. Oh, you are tested, and you are tried, and you are revealed. Incidentally, we're going back to the Boundary Waters this summer, and so space is still available. Oh, the wilderness, it, 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 it reveals. And what Israel learned about itself in the wilderness, this place of testing, it has learned they might have been taken out of Egypt, but Egypt had not been taken out of them. And so they were tested in the wilderness to see if they could live as free people. And in each of the tests that they faced, they failed miserably. So we hear the echoes of, of Exodus, but, but we also should hear some fainter echoes, but they're still there nonetheless, the, the echoes of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And especially we see, we hear these echoes with this voice, the voice of a tempter appearing, questioning God. And in the garden it was, did God really say? And in Matthew chapter 4, it's, if you are the son of God, So just as the Israelites were tempted in the wilderness, our first parents were tested in the garden to see if they could live in paradise. Tests we know that they failed miserably. So that first test Israelites faced was a a test of food, a test of whether or not they could trust that God would provide for them in their hunger. And so in Exodus 16, the people grumbled against Moses, they cried out, and and the King James is so beautiful here. It says, would that we have stayed by the flesh pots in Egypt. I don't know what a flesh pot is, but it's a pot full of meat, man. I wish I would have stayed by the flesh pots in Egypt, rather, and where we ate bread to the full, they said, rather than die, starve to death in the wilderness. God had brought them out of Egypt to live, and here they were believing instead that, that God had brought them out to die. 
Adam and Eve also faced a test of, of food, forbidden food. All the trees in the garden, God said, take any, eat from any one of these, except for the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and, and the tempter speaks to our first parents, causing them to doubt God's goodness and God's provision, saying, in essence, God's holding out on you. And so the test of food is, is this test of whether you really believe that God is enough, enough for life, enough for freedom. Look at Jesus. The devil tempts him after he has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and that is the extreme limit of what a human being can, can actually fast. At, at, past that point, uh, you're going to start to die really quickly. And so after 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus is ravaged with hunger. But instead of complaining, instead of doubting the provision of God or the, the desire that God has that he should have life, Jesus demonstrates that his physical hunger is actually pointing beyond itself to a deeper hunger and a more pressing existential need that he has. And so when he's faced with this test for bread, he quotes Deuteronomy 8. And Deuteronomy is, is Moses' farewell speech. It's right before he dies. Uh, the Israelites are about to enter the promised land, and so Moses is like, all right, I'm going to give you this last kind of set of warning and set of teaching. And so again, we have an echo of the Exodus with the scripture that Jesus is choosing to quote. Where Jesus, echoing Moses, says, Man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus here has the audacity to say that there is a spiritual sustenance that we need just as much as physical bread, and that is a nourishing, life-giving word from God. You know, whereas the first Adam doubted and disobeyed God's word, for Jesus, the second Adam, God's word was everything. It was enough. And so Jesus passes the food test that if he wants to be the Messiah, he's going to have to desire God more than anything else in the world more even than life itself. If he is going to truly live, he's going to have to be prepared to die trusting God. Trust that no matter what happens, God is enough. The great Catholic priest and, and spiritual writer Henry Nouwen, he characterizes this temptation for us, the, the food temptation, the bread temptation, as the temptation to be relevant Jesus faces this temptation to turn stones to bread and meet the immediately relevant need he has of hunger. And the church always faces, it struggles with the sneaking sense that it is irrelevant, that the gospel isn't enough. You know, what do, what do we really have to say to a world where belief in God is optional and the church is seen as a you know, reactionary or, or maybe a pointless institution? There's always this temptation to look at the pressing issues of the day and say, well, we can make ourselves relevant. We can make the world listen to us. Either speaking into the pressing issues of the day or, or, or somehow, you know, desperately looking into culture for a way to be like, see, we're just like you too. You know, ride the, it's like the pastor riding the, what are those things called? The hoverboards or whatever, you know what I mean? Going around, well, we're relevant, we're cool. Always that temptation to go, well, we, we, we've got to make ourselves relevant, that, that this isn't enough. We have something to say to the spirit of the age, but as the saying goes, and it's true, whoever weds himself to the spirit of the age will find themselves a widower in the next. 
And so what the world needs today are Christians who are willing to be completely irrelevant and stand in this world with nothing to offer but the grace of God in Jesus Christ. People who are willing to believe that that's enough, God is enough, Jesus is enough. That's the first test. But then there's the second test. The devil takes Jesus to a high point in the temple and he says, okay, you said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, here's God's word. Let you try this one on. And so the, 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 the devil goes on and he quotes scripture, uh, scripture, Psalm 91, which says, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And in Jewish tradition, Psalm 91, it's, a, it's associated with Moses, another echo of Exodus. Uh, and it's after Moses has built the tabernacle, which was a portable version of the temple where Jesus is now standing. And it's all about how God will protect those who trust in him from danger. And so the devil's challenge to Jesus is this. You say you trust in God's word above all else, that it's your, your life even more than bread. Go ahead. Put your money where your mouth is. If you really think that God will protect you, that he's going to rescue you, that God's word is true, that you actually believe it, and you are who you say you are, prove it to me. And it's this temptation to invert his relationship with God, to go from serving God to God serving him, from loving God and trusting God to using God. Now back to Israel in the chapter that immediately followed their, 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 their food test, which was answered with manna in the wilderness. They grumbled again, this time because they were without water. And so they complained to Moses and they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt into this wilderness? Was it to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And the text says there that the people put God to the test. They, they said, is the Lord among us or not? Prove it. Moses, you say God is our God and we're his people and God is a God of life and of freedom. Show us. Prove it. Make it happen. And Adam and Eve, they faced the test of testing God too after the tempter said to Eve, well, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in this garden? And she replied, quoting what she had heard from God apparently. He said, actually, only you shall not eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the tempter replies, you will not surely die. For God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be open. See what the tempter is doing? He's saying, in essence, put God, put God's word to the test. Make God prove it. Invert the relationship. Now look at Jesus. He is tested with the temptation of testing God, of showing that that. He believes in God's promises by manipulating God into proving himself, which is the exact opposite of faith. It's the test of manipulating God and God's word to our own ends. And so Jesus responds to this test by again quoting Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We serve God. God doesn't serve us. Henry Nouwen characterizes this temptation for contemporary Christians as the temptation to be spectacular. In other words, the temptation to be popular, to not point people to God, but instead use God, use scripture, use the things of God to, 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 to point to ourselves. And we live in a culture that's infected with this desire to be popular. If you are a subscriber to Hulu or Netflix, 
Um, hopefully both, because then you can watch both of the new documentaries that just came out about the Fire Festival, which if you're not familiar with the Fire Festival, wow. <laughs> but it's this boondoggle of a fake music festival that happened, was supposed to happen in the Bahamas, and, and it played upon people's desire, right? It used influencers, popular people, uh, to trick people out of their money. And, and it's just an amazing manifestation of this desire to be popular, to have influence, that's why all of our apps have likes or favorites, right? It gives us that dopamine hit. Oh, and dopamine is a powerful chemical. It's a powerful drug in our brains that we crave. But what the world needs isn't popular Christians, famous Christians, Christian celebrities, or Christian influencers to get clicks, likes, and shares. We need more anonymous Christians, women and men doing the hard, unglamorous, day-to-day work of denying themselves and following Jesus by loving the world and its people wherever we are. People willing to turn attention away from themselves to where it belongs, on Jesus. And this temptation to be spectacular is one that Jesus faced constantly. And I think it lies behind the fact that he's regularly withdrawing from the crowds to pray. And he's oftentimes performing his miracles in secret and he's commanding people, don't tell anyone that I did this. Because he realizes that this can quickly become a way of putting God to the test and on the spot, of, of making his ministry a matter of using God rather than loving and serving God. Which brings us to the third and final temptation. The devil takes Jesus to the peak of a very high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and all of their glory and their splendor. And he says, all these I will give to you and more if you will just bow down and worship me. And this is the temptation of false glory. The temptation to seek godly power apart from God. It's the temptation that Israel faced in the wilderness when Moses himself was up on top of a very high mountain, again an echo of the Exodus. And when he stayed up there for too long, what did God's people do? They said, let's make a golden calf that they bowed down and worshiped. Why did they do that? They'd just been through, you know, the Red Sea and they'd gotten manna from heaven and water from the rock and they'd gathered around Mount Sinai where Moses was up on top of and, and they had seen thunder and lightning and, 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 and loud noises and they'd seen smoke. And they did all that and then when Moses just stayed up there too long, they made an idol. I think we see there this, this temptation to want God's power for ourselves apart from God on our own terms. Adam and Eve, they face that test too. Echoes of the garden, the serpent. The serpent says, if you eat that tree, the tree, God said, don't. Then you will become like, your eyes will be opened, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation of false glory is the temptation to become like God so that ultimately we can do away with God. And the message of the serpent is you can get what you want without God. There is a shortcut to listening and obeying, worshiping and serving. All you have to do is eat this fruit. Now look at Jesus. Jesus' test is a shortcut to glory too. Jesus understands that, that, that Israel's Messiah has a universal mission to reach the nations with, with this message. At the end of Matthew, what does he do? He gives a great commission. He says, go out into all the world. But that comes after the cross, after the suffering, after the wilderness. 
And so the devil is testing Jesus, saying, I can give you what your ultimate mission is. The nations of the world, I can give you the kingdom, and I can give it to you without the cross. All you have to do, just bow down and worship me. There's a shortcut. Unless we think that this was not a real test for Jesus, Jesus understood the cost he was going to have to pay, the burden he was going to have to bear. He he went to the cross willingly, but not excitedly. The Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was arrested and, and betrayed, Jesus is there praying, sweating blood, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus understood the darkness of the cross. If, if you could get the kingdom without the cross, wouldn't you? And if you were Israel and you could make an image of God so that you could always be certain of God's presence and keep God under your control, wouldn't you? And if you were Adam and Eve, wouldn't it sound nice to be like God? But Jesus passes this last test, quoting what else? Deuteronomy, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus refused to take the easy way. He refused to take any shortcuts. And so he passed the third and the final and the hardest test of all. Now and characterizes this as the temptation to be powerful. And on this he writes eloquently. When I ask myself the main reason for so many people having left the church during the past decades, the word power easily comes to mind. One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power. Political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power, even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. We keep hearing from others as well as saying to ourselves that having power, provided it is used in the service of God and your fellow human beings, is a good thing. With this rationalization, crusades took place. Inquisitions were organized. Indians were enslaved. Positions of great influence were desired. Episcopal palaces, splendid cathedrals, and opulent seminaries were built. And much moral manipulation of conscience was engaged in. Every time we see a major crisis in the history of the church such as the Great Schism of the 11th century, the Reformation of the 16th century, or the immense secularization of the 20th century, we always see that a major cause of rupture is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, to control people than to love people. Friends, the good news of our passage is that Jesus passed the tests that Adam and Israel and we have failed. He offered God a life of perfect obedience, holiness, justice, and righteousness. He resisted the temptations to be relevant, to be popular and powerful. He demonstrated instead a life of complete trust in God and God's word. And so in the face of temptations, our own tests, might we look to Jesus, follow his example of prayer, saturate our hearts, minds, and imaginations with scripture, and might we always trust that it's not up to us to pass any test, to prove ourselves worthy. He's already done that for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, please pray with me.